before we get going, here's the bit where I remind you that nothing we discussed during the end game should be considered as investment advice. This conversation is for informational and hopefully entertainment purposes only. So while we hope you find it both informative and entertaining, please do your own research or speak to a financial advisor before putting a dime of your money into these crazy markets. And now, on with the show. Welcome, everybody, to another edition of The Endgame. Joining me, as always, my co-host and general all-around good guy, Bill Fleckenstein. Hi, mate. Thank you, mate, for that nice introduction. I'm very interested today to talk to our guests because I have seen the word liquidity tossed around in so many different ways, shapes, and forms in my 40 years in the investment business, and I've seen a lot of it be bogus. This seems like hey, uh, Michael seems like an extremely serious practitioner uh, and and a person of capable of discussing the topic. So I'm really looking forward to uh, getting a few uh, questions that I have answered. Yeah, no, my, Michael Howell of Cross Border Capital is our guest today, and Michael is um, is absolutely the guy I always turn to when I've got any questions about liquidity. He's here, they, they put a lot of good stuff up on Twitter uh, at Cross Border Cap, um, and their work on the subject of liquidity is is deep and um, and and dense, but it's it's understandable. And and Michael has such a great handle on this that um, I think it'd be a really interesting conversation because, as you say, Bill, this this word gets thrown around. It's it's popped up in so many episodes of the End Game. So we figured it was time to get someone on who could actually help us kind of analyze it and see what role it plays. So why don't we get Michael on? Without further ado, let's do it. Michael, welcome to the End Game. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Sure, great pleasure to be here, Grant. You know, Bill and I have been kind of chatting about all these various moving parts of the financial system in, in an attempt to try and figure out not only what's happening now, but but what happens next, which I think is probably far more important, and how the system that currently feels like it's reaching at the end of its useful life transitions to whatever replaces it. And there's one word that keeps cropping up in a lot of these conversations, and that's liquidity. And I don't know anybody that, that monitors liquidity as, as closely and as effectively and communicates about it as well as you. So, so I thought it'd be a great opportunity for us to, to have you come and, and chat with us about liquidity, you know, what we mean by it, how you monitor it, its importance and the, and the various kind of pockets of liquidity that, that bear watching. So that, that's really what we'd, we'd love to chat with you about today. Sure, sure. Delighted to help. Um, I mean, I can give you a little bit of the history of how, how I first got into this. Um, that basically goes back to the late 1980s when I was working at Salmon Brothers. And um, Salmon Brothers at the time, I mean, let me maybe step back because many people may not know who Salmon were. Yeah, right. um, Salmon Brothers, now probably part of, uh, of Citigroup, uh, was um, when I joined them, the biggest trading firm worldwide and yeah. dominated the fixed income and Forex markets and were basically making um, entry into the world arena and beginning to go cross border really for the first time. It was, um, you know, they were, they were, um, the so-called big of, uh, Michael Lewis's book, uh, Liars Poker. That was, uh, you know, launched Michael Lewis's career as a writer. Uh, if you want some insight at what went on, Salmon Brothers, read that book. Yeah. Salmon Brothers in the, in the mid to late 1980s was beginning to internationalize its business. And one of the things we wanted to try and understand was the size of the of the business that someone could get. 
So I was tasked with looking at um, cross-border flows to get an idea of what the size of that market could be, what the profit opportunities were. And I started to dig into the data and I realized, well, hey, there wasn't really any data. Nobody really started to track this thing at all. Uh, it, was, it was really a new science. And so what I began to do was to pull in data from various areas, uh, starting with the US, but looking at uh, what the UK was doing, what Japan was doing, et cetera. And then sort of building up this sort of tapestry of what the uh, world liquidity picture was doing. Now, we began to call that global liquidity. We realized that that was a fast-moving feature of the world economy. A lot of liquidity had been unleashed, uh, particularly through episodes called Plaza and the Louvre Accords, when central banks were uh, easing liquidity um, sort of pretty much together in a coordinated fashion. And what you saw were these big waves of liquidity really hitting markets. And we haven't looked back from that. I mean, that's what we do. That's our, that's our business. We try have uh, an investment uh, business on top of that that actually, well, I'm not part of that, but it's the other side of the Chinese wall that runs money based on this data. So when we talk about liquidity, I mean, the, the word is thrown around so much these days. And I think everybody has a general sense of, of what we mean by that. But but again, you know, it's another one of those things that in, in the age of central banks interfering in every single corner of capital markets – People tend to associate liquidity really with QE these days and, and monetary policy. But talk about what you mean by liquidity and the different types of liquidity that are out there that you monitor. Okay, I think what you've got to do first of all is to distinguish market liquidity, which is all about depth or measures of the spread, the bid ask spread, from funding liquidity, which is already the thing that we look at. Now, funding liquidity creates market liquidity. So you can't have good market liquidity without good funding liquidity. Basically, funding liquidity gives uh, investors or dealers the ability to transact. In other words, it, it gives them the ability to take on positions. Uh, if you like, it's a, a measure of balance sheet capacity. And we measure it uh, by looking at, um, uh, at the asset side of, of really the private sector balance sheets, We're looking at all forms of credit and all forms of savings that effectively move through financial markets. In other words, it includes things like uh, traditional bank credit, shadow bank credit, um, corporate cash flow, uh, household savings, all these elements. These are all sources of liquidity. So fundamentally, what we're doing is we're taking a flow of funds approach and we're focusing on the sources of liquidity, not so much the uses of liquidity. We're very much looking at the sources. Now, one of the paradoxes in this whole game is that what people talk about as money supply, okay, the M2 measure, is actually not a source of liquidity, it's a use of liquidity because it's bank deposits. If I get a lot of credit or a lot of cash flow, I put it into a bank, okay? And that's where people get muddled with this whole thing. Now that bank deposit may well be, it may become a source of future lending because a bank can then fund itself through that, but it's not what we're really looking at. So we're looking at the Assets, so we're, we're focused much more on credit. As um, you know, Henry Kaufman, who used to be uh, head of research at Salem Brothers and pioneered a lot of this stuff, says, you know, um, money matters, but credit counts. And that's what we're focusing on. So where are we seeing the, the biggest kind of shifts in liquidity post the pandemic? Because obviously there's been this fiscal and monetary blitz we've seen now. How has that kind of affected the dynamics of liquidity flows? Okay, well, I think what you've got to do is you've got to look at uh, principally sort of three main sources of liquidity, global liquidity. 
One is what central banks are doing. So that really comes under the heading of QE. And post the pandemic, that has been a that's been a huge factor. So what you've seen is a significant elevation in the size of central bank QE, which has gone from something like $20 trillion to basically $30 trillion. So it, that's you know a 50% jump on average. Some central banks have done more, some have done less. The second source is basically private sector. Now, the private sector tends to leverage up uh, its balance sheet or its liquidity based on two things. Number one is what the central banks can provide. So there's, if you like, feedstock from the central banks, uh, that enables banks to actually borrow and leverage. And the other element is collateral. Uh, so they can actually create liquidity themselves using collateral. And that's where you know all this uh, discussion about the repo market and reverse repos really comes in, or FX swaps. This is liquidity that is created within by the private sector, within the private sector. And then there's a the third element, which is cross-border flows, which really don't necessarily affect the overall picture but clearly can affect, can give a regional slant to how liquidity is shifting from one area to the other. And that tends to be particularly important when you look at emerging markets, because the story in emerging markets is pretty much all a cross-border story. Now, if you say, well, okay, let's, moving on from that, what has really been the major dynamic? Uh, let's take two periods. One is the period, let's say, over the last maybe 10 to 20 years, what's really changed? And what has changed more recently? Without any question, the elephant in the room in the last 20 years is China. China has basically come to dominate uh, the global liquidity pool, okay, in terms of value or the amount outstanding. China is now responsible for about 30% of global liquidity, which is an eye-wateringly large number. Now, fortunately, it punches below its weight. So a lot of that is stored up in China and it doesn't get out, right? The US punches above its weight because US liquidity in the US dollar is paramount. The US probably accounts for about 25% of global liquidity now, but that number has come down as a percentage. China, 20 years ago, was barely 10% of global liquidity. Uh, I think was the actual answer was about 6%. So it's, it's come from almost nowhere to a big, big number. And that's really because the Chinese have... Uh, have developed their financial markets. There's been these credit booms going on, et cetera. But a lot of that has been housed within the Chinese economy and has not really spilled out. There's a lot of, as we know, there's capital controls. So those have been the two uh, instances. Short term, it's been central banks generally led by the Federal Reserve and the ECB. Over the longer term, China. Before we get on to what's happening now, let's go back to a couple of previous instances. Let's go back to 99, 2000. Let's go back to 2008 and get a sense of what changes we saw in liquidity, if any, that maybe presaged either of those, uh, either of those crises, whether you saw similar moves or they, were, or they were kind of idiosyncratic moves because they were different types of crisis. Yeah, I think there's, uh, I mean, there, there are a whole number of things I think one can tackle. I mean, one is what has driven these trends in liquidity? I think you can go back even further than those episodes and look at things like the end of Bretton Woods uh, back in 1971, which was one of the factors that unleashed private sector liquidity in the world. You've had deregulation, uh, whether you look at things like Big Bang in London in 1986, uh, whether you look at the, the abolition of capital controls in the UK in 79, and equivalently, I think, in 79 in Japan as well. These are all critical elements. 
whether you go back and look at the, the repeal of Glass-Steagall in uh, 1999, these are all instances which freed up liquidity uh, globally. You know, other instances, uh, the 1974 ERISA Act in the US, which basically meant that institutions had to had to fund the liabilities more directly. And so there was a big move of money into securities markets. So there's a whole lot of features which have which have which have been uh, you know in legislation which have enabled liquidity to expand. So these these are features. Now if we come back to some of the more cyclical elements that you're referring to like uh, 2008 or 1998, a lot of that comes back to policy error by central banks. Uh, and those big swings in liquidity really attest to that. And that's maybe what we're looking at now as another policy error building, which we can come on to. But uh, that's maybe a later story. So if you look at what happened in 2008, one of the things that, uh, or the lead up to 2008, is that Bernanke, if we recall in 2002, made the statement deflation, making sure it doesn't happen here. And that was really a recipe to unleash a lot of liquidity into the US economy. Now, the problem, in my estimation, that central banks had at that stage, they didn't really know or understand what deflation was. Okay, Is it really high street inflation? Is it really CPI? One of the issues that was uh, in the background at the time was that China was coming in, muscling its way into the world economy. Now, with hindsight, one of the bigger policy mistakes that may have been made was allowing China free entry through uh, the World Trade or entry into the World Trade Organization in 2001. And that enabled China to export and catch up with the West at a very rapid pace. Now, it created a lot of cost deflation in the world. And there's nothing wrong with cost deflation. It may hurt Western producers, but from a consumer point of view, it's not bad. Is that the sort of deflation that central bankers want to stop? Certainly, it shouldn't be but it still encouraged low interest rates. And the deregulation that was in the air at the time led to this bubble in liquidity. Now, other factors came in at the time. China was also instrumental. And one of the things that China was doing was ramping up uh, liquidity and domestic growth ahead of the Olympics. That's another feature, okay? And then China hit the brakes hard uh, in 2008, which may have been one of the triggers uh, initially for the crisis. Now. Uh, that's you know that needs more investigation, but there is certainly evidence that uh, their fingerprints were there. So I think you can you can embroider stories. If you go back to 1998 and the Asian crisis, this was basically all about the free flow of capital, cross border flows, winging their way into Asian markets, and the size of the capital flow just swamping these markets. It was just way way too big for them to deal with. So what they had to do is to monetize those capital inflows, in other words, print money to stop their currencies appreciating, and that caused domestic asset booms. And then asset booms burst at some stage, and the bursting was what we saw in the fallout through 1997-98. Now, two other elements came in terms of policy decisions at that time, which affected the future. The first of those was the decision in 1998 to bail out long-term capital management, okay? If you go back historically, in 1984, Continental Illinois was left to go, right? In 1995, Bearings Bank was let go. But long-term capital was kept. In other words, the too big to fail was there and central banks basically came in to support. Now, that's a, that's a critical factor. 
in terms of understanding the future. Um, and in actual fact, at the time, long-term capital clients of ours, and I can remember sitting in Greenwich, Connecticut, uh, actually talking with the team, and there alongside was the late David Mullins from the Fed, former vice chairman, pouring over these charts, which were showing uh, evidence of capital flow leaving Asia en masse and liquidity conditions tightening quite significantly in these markets and puzzled faces looking towards David Mullins saying, is this really what's going on? Uh, I had no idea. Nobody really knew the size of their concentration of positions, but that was the background. Liquidity was clearly important at that time. The corollary to that whole episode was what Asian central banks did with the capital inflow after 1998. They began to build up foreign exchange reserves en masse. That was the so-called Bretton Woods II period, and that was another period of, of further liquidity growth in the future. So, you know, essentially what you've got is a little bit like a pinball machine with the ball crashing against the flippers in different areas at different times and lights flashing and whatever. Uh, it, it's a very, you know, it's an exciting but fraught time. I have a question about, I guess the best way to phrase it is all liquidity not necessarily being created equal. As I listen to you to describe the the events that you just did, having run money and uh, run a short only fund through quite a bit of that period and comparing that to now, it doesn't seem to me that the Chinese liquidity that you reference and the central bank QE liquidity are necessarily equal if they're the same dollar amount. For instance, if we do 50 billion of QE and they do 50 billion of liquidity creation in China, it doesn't seem to me like it would impact the financial markets in the, in the same way. And the central bank QE is more power. That's been my experience. I'd like to ask you, do you see it that way? And how do you adjust for the the relative power, if it's true, in your thinking? How do you weigh those two? Yeah, 100% correct. That's absolutely how it is. So if you look at the way that uh, the Chinese system works, PBOC is really all powerful. Um, And what it does is it controls uh, liquidity, principally going into the state-owned banks. Okay, The state-owned banks are the main conduit for liquidity getting out into the wider economy. So it's a very clear transmission. Now, one of the things that uh, one of the paradoxes uh, that you find, particularly in uh, what a lot of pundits will argue, is that the Chinese financial system is very fragile. Okay, that's that's the the general perception. That's not true. Actually, the Chinese have tremendous control over their system. Uh, it's not as fragile as people would make out. But a lot of that liquidity is going directly into the real economy. Now, it may be distorting the real economy, and it may be causing problems. I believe it is. In everything I look at, and I used to study the former Soviet economies when I was an academic, uh, if you look at what China is doing, this looks a parallel to the Soviet Union in the 1960s and early 70s. The only question is we may be 10, 15, 20 years plus away from a denouement uh, in China. So it may be a long time coming. But the Chinese financial system is remarkably stable. Look at the West and the points that you make about the power of central bank liquidity are all there, but a lot of that money goes through the financial system. It doesn't really get out into the real economy. And that was clearly the problem we had in the wake of 2008. There was a lot of liquidity, but it never got to the real economies. And one of the things that policymakers are struggling with now is getting that money out into the real economy. They're having some success, more success than they did in the previous crisis, but that clearly is still a challenge. 
Now, one of the issues that is in the background, in contrast to China, is that the West collectively has fragile financial systems, much more fragile than China. Okay, look at the crises we've been through time and time again. And those crises come back fundamentally to two reasons. One is that China is dominant in the world economy. It is eclipsing, uh, maybe with unfair competition, maybe not, uh, a lot of Western corporations. Those Western corporations are being forced to refocus their businesses. They're not investing in new capital. They're restructuring. They're getting their average returns on capital up, but their marginal returns are still very low. Where do they put the dollar that they create? They put it into financial markets. And what you've got is this big pool of what we call corporate and institutional cash pools, which is the money, which is the feedstock of global liquidity worldwide. And that's coming, if you like, partly as a result uh, of this phenomenon. The other thing that goes on in the West is that interest rates are maintained at, I would argue, artificially low levels, okay, persistently. Now, that's the policy remedy that most policymakers pursue. It is absolutely bonkers, okay? If you want to eliminate debt, why do you incentivize people to hold more debt, take up more debt? Raising <laughs> interest rates, not cutting interest rates. This is what Badgett said, Walter Badgett, back in the 19th century. And the financial markets we've got now in the world economy are very much like what London had in the late 19th century uh, in the UK. These were markets that were dominated by wholesale finance. They were extremely volatile. They needed an active central bank in the form of the Bank of England uh, to actually work out what was going on. There was a long tradition in the UK where the governor, because he had no really information, but he used to put on his top hat and allegedly go out into the market every Thursday walking around, listening to what the bill brokers were saying. So he understood who was in need of cash and who wasn't. And that was how the London system basically operated. It was a sort of you know touchy-feely thing of actually providing liquidity as a last resort. Um, in other words, Badgett said, lend freely, but at a high rate of interest. What these guys are doing now is lending freely at zero interest rates. So the take-up of debt is enormous. Now, the problem therefore comes is that the financial system in the world is no longer the textbook model of a new financing system, okay, which, fu which finances new capital spend. It's a refinancing system for existing debt. So what you've got out there is $300 trillion of debt with an average maturity of five years. You've got to roll $60 trillion of debt every year. Come what may. That's a difficult task. And you need balance sheet capacity to do that. And balance sheet capacity is gross liquidity, the numbers that we're talking about. So every time that they start to do a taper, right, what happens is that that capacity shrinks it's difficult to roll, and so you get a financial crisis, and you get another episode of QE. And we said back in 2008, these QE episodes, it's not a one-off, it's a sequence. It's like a bottle of headache tablets. You take one after the other after the other, and you're soon going to get up to QE 10, QE 20, or whatever. This is how it's going to go. This is what central banks are going to do. And the only way that they break out of that is they, they get rid of the debt problem. And debt will require a reversal of austerity policies. Well, hey, we may or may not be going there. And certainly higher interest rates. Now, as a sort of a heads up as to what could happen, go back to a paper that James Bullard, president of the St. Louis Fed, wrote in 2010, which was called, I think, Seven Faces of the 
the seven faces of the peril or whatever. And what that was basically talking about was saying, isn't it odd that the more you cut interest rates, the more inflation falls. And we're getting into a Japan-like debt trap here in the US. I think then interest rates were circa 5%. And he said, the more you cut rates, the more we're going to fall into this low inflation period. People were dismissive, but hey, it's exactly where we got. Everybody is going towards the Japan model. It's, it's Japanification. And the sort of the, you know, the paradox here is that China is making everyone look Japanese. Just it, it struck me there as you were talking about that, that it almost feels like the danger facing the West now is basically a kind of a version of the Asian crisis that we saw back in 98. That, from what you said there, that seems to me to be perhaps the biggest problem we face and, and perhaps may therefore offer the biggest clues in terms of, of the stresses that appeared prior to the Asian crisis. Am I right or am I misreading that? I think you're absolutely right. I think, you know, I think we're hooked on debt and we're hooked on central banks, uh, central bank QE, and it's really difficult to get off those. And, you know, the, the world basically is becoming, you know, polarised onto this whole concept of Japanification of industry, if you like, or economy, and fragile finance. And the only thing that it what will resolve that, you know, at the end of the day, is a much bigger state. In other words, there's got to be more and more state control over things. Central banks have got to get bigger. There's got to be more public spending, et cetera. That's a very unappealing outlook, but it's the road that everyone is basically pushing down. So, Michael, basically what you just described is that we are, that the central banks are basically trapped on this uh, hamster wheel of QE forever. And I'm, sh- I'm sure this isn't knowable, but I'm dying to ask you, Two questions. Why do you think more people aren't concerned about the danger that that presents prospectively? And how would you see the end game, since that's the name of the podcast, of this period of central banks being unable to do anything but more of what they've done, always at a lower rate and always bigger? Okay, I think that, uh, you know, the, the, the fundamental issue is that people don't recognize that the financial system refinancing mechanism, not a new financing mechanism anymore, okay? And that's the, that's the fundamental uh, difference or, or dividing point. If you look at, the, you know, an observation or a paradox, basically what central banks or policymakers have done for the last 10 years is they've wrestled to try to get control back of the liquidity creation mechanism, okay? So they've done various things. They've tried to scale down, um, you know, things like uh, the, the euro-dollar markets, uh, they've tried to, you know, widen their remit within the U.S. economy, bring in more institutions. They've tried to control liquidity. The great paradox is that as they've got control back, they've been responsible for the biggest monetary inflation the world has ever seen in COVID. <laughs> I mean, that that's the irony. And then embroidering that whole picture is a statement which says, generally, in the three or four decades I've been in financial markets, what you've seen is as the world has got bigger and bigger, it's become more and more volatile. And that's the, the financial story. And what they've got to do is to try and get control or try and stop that. But they need to recognize the fact that financial markets are now all about refinancing debt, not about financing new capital. The amount of debt relative to capital spending, the ratio is about 13 to 1, Okay, which means that something like in terms of funding 
uh, within financial markets, something like five or six uh, dollars out of, uh, sorry, yeah, five dollars out of every six is about funding uh, a rollover of debt. Low interest rates are not the right policy for that. Yeah, no, no, exactly right, and and, it, and it's it is sucking up a lot of that capital now, and and it's amazing, Michael, to see how just about every corner of financial markets and risk assets have now found themselves absolutely dependent upon low rates. You know, whether it's the housing market, whether it's financial markets, stocks, bonds, no, no matter what it is, private equity, every single component now is reliant upon low rates forever. So given transitory inflation that we're facing at the moment, which seems, uh, depending on your definition of transitory, to, to be a laughable description of it for the time being at least, how do you think this resolves itself? Because the two without massive artificial price setting in, in supposedly free capital markets, the, the two of them do not sit well in the same bed. Well, I think the, uh, you know, the, the end game, there may, there may be several possible futures out there, but I think that you know, the first thing, as I said, is that the world is basically shifting more and more towards this notion about becoming Japanese. You've got big debt problems. You've got worsening demographics around the world, and it, there is an inability to create growth. Now, the problem that debt, debt has is that if you see, let's say, a loss of pricing power, whatever it may be, prices fall, and you're a debtor where you've got to make debt service payments, the only thing you can do is to produce more. Okay. So that's 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 the supply angle that we don't seem to figure. So debt is deflationary. And there's no way we can get out of that. Now, central banks may wish to create inflation, but I don't really see how they can do it. What's the mechanism? You've got you've got so you've got to run your economies really hot to get generate any sort of wage inflation, I would reckon. And their ability to run economies hot, I just don't think is there. Okay, So you can forget wage inflation, which means that they are going to fall back on the existing policies of low interest rates, which we know are flawed. But the problem with low interest rates is you you get elevated asset prices. I mean, there's no question that you know equities are going to remain high in this environment while interest rates are low. Because that's that's the nature of the beast. Uh, that's how the the pricing mechanism or the valuation mechanism works. Low rates means high equity valuations. You may get cycles, but at the end of the day, P multiples remain high in this kind of environment. Now, house prices will likely go up because you're actually encouraging more and more people to take out collateralized loans. You know, Boris Johnson in the UK has got this you know 25 year guaranteed mortgage that young people can take. He's encouraging house purchase. And that's probably quite a you know quite a astute political move. But at the end of the day, what you're doing is disenfranchising large elements of the population that have not got access to financial or housing wealth. Okay, so there's going to be huge wealth gaps occurring, and that's a problem. Now, it may be a problem in the UK, and it may be a problem in the US, but I can assure you it's going to be an even even bigger problem once you start looking at the eurozone, because you've already got system there, which is a maldistribution of income and wealth, courtesy of the euro. And if you look at what's going on in the eurozone, I don't think that looks a particularly happy long-term place, because you've got accumulating debt in the wrong places. You've got demographics which look absolutely terrible, okay, uh, across the region, um, particularly in Eastern Europe, but certainly across the region. 
And you've got an exchange rate mechanism, which is making the rich richer and the poor poorer. But that's how fixed exchange rate systems operate. Look at the US, exactly the same thing happens. Look at the UK, exactly the same thing happens with sterling or the US dollar. You get rich regions becoming richer and poor regions becoming poorer. That's the nature of the beast. Okay, But there's a leveling up through fiscal policy, government procurement, uh, for example, in the US, social security payments, regional grants in the UK. That just doesn't happen to the same scale in the Eurozone. And the Germans, I'm sure, are unwilling to have some unified budget, which will allow uh, that spending to take place. So you're going to get a further polarization in Europe of the rich areas getting richer and the poor getting poorer. And that doesn't make for a happy community. Now, the other point that is worth bearing in mind on top of that is if you look at the direction of fixed direct investment in the Eurozone. And this tells you or underscores that these trends are happening. What you see is Germany, which is the powerhouse of Europe, is investing increasingly in the East and in Central Europe, not in the West, with ironically the exception being the UK. But it's not investing very much in France, in Spain, in Italy. It's investing primarily in Eastern Europe and to what extent it can in Russia. And that is telling you that Europe is moving more and more eastwards. The center of gravity is moving away from the West. So you're going to get a lot of problems emerging in terms of maldistribution of wealth. But this is all about these same trends. This idea of Japanification, it's kind of... When, when people talk about it, they hold it up as a very benign example of how this can all play out. Because, hey, look, you know, Japan's been doing this for 30-odd years now and nothing bad's happened there, you know? And I always question that simply because Japan, for the longest time, certainly at the beginning of its process, was doing this in isolation. It was doing it on its own. And yes, it was the second biggest economy in the world at the time, but it, the world could carry Japan doing that because there was organic growth, real growth elsewhere. You know, the, the bricks were growing double digits and there was solid growth in Europe, solid growth in the US. So as we get to this point where a lot more Western-style economies are moving down that Japanification road together, how is it sustainable for the world to carry major economies following that same playbook when there isn't anywhere else that can offset the stagnation that, that's going to be inherent in those countries? Exactly. I, I don't think they can. Now, I think that Japan is the, the exception, which maybe proves, proves the rule here, because Japan, as we know, and you know, is a compliant society. Yeah. Uh, not going to be, there won't be too many eruptions from this. Equally, I think I'm correct in saying, but uh, I stand corrected if not, that there's a, quite an aggressive wealth uh, death duty or wealth tax. Uh, those assets have to be transferred to the state uh, on death. So basically what that means is that there's more ability to uh, you know, create a social safety net uh, in Japan and, and redistribute some of that income. Uh, that clearly is not happening elsewhere. And I think in a lot of economies, that uh, sort of rapacious... Uh, taxation uh, would not go down very particularly well in the middle classes. So if we could stick on this idea of um, the Asian crisis being perhaps the best model, ironically now, for developed markets, and we look back at the signs we saw, and you, and you put some great charts out recently. Um, our mutual friend Russell Napier has just, just published a, a new book talking about this in, in part, and you published some great charts showing what happened going into the Asian crisis in places like Korea, for example, Thailand, in terms of liquidity flows 
and FX risk. So talk a little bit about those two dynamics, how they interact and why they're important and how they may give potential signs in the West of when we're starting to reach a point where we may get some more volatility. Okay, well, all, all those examples that you cite were basically examples where liquidity, the flow of liquidity in the market tumbled in each case. And um, what it caused was forced selling, asset prices collapsed, uh, foreign money quit quickly, and exchange rates tumbled. And that created you know, the, the so-called fallout of the, the Asian crisis. Now, in those particular examples, the local central banks were not able to create, or they, 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 were, they were not reserve currencies, and so their ability to create liquidity was always limited. If you're looking at the West, you've got more reserve currencies, and so it's much less the cross-border flow element that's important there. It's what the domestic central bank is doing, and through the central banks, what their private sectors are doing in creation of liquidity. So what you've got to look at closely are factors like inflections in central bank liquidity, because that will likely have a leveraged effect on the private sectors. So in other words, looking at liquidity cycles in the West is not only about looking at cross-border flows, it's much more understanding the dynamics of central banks. So when I said earlier on that seeing repeated financial crises in the West is fragile, what that's really saying is, as soon as you get those inflections in central bank liquidity and Western liquidity begins to tumble, debt refinancing is compromised and you see uh, a, a jump into safe assets. As you jump into safe assets, the pool of collateral against which you can finance disappears or shrinks and liquidity tumbles even further. So you get these big swings in liquidity. The system is becoming more and more pro-cyclical. Um, and that's why I said you know, volatility is generally on the rise. Now, there is a difference which is beginning to build in Asia and that is something I don't fully understand, but it seems to be apparent. And maybe this is a, a question to pose to you as well, because you've got a lot of experience of the Asian markets. In 30 years of looking at Asia, I've never seen currency markets as stable as they are now. Yeah. Volatility has disappeared. So what's going on? Something odd is happening. Now, I would venture that that something is goes back to the 2016 Shanghai Accord, when after a G10 meeting, there was collective decisions made about getting the dollar down. Now, that happened, but out of that, there was general stability in the Asian currencies. The Asian currencies are kind of flatlining as a basket, and de facto, uh, they are creating the equivalent of a euro okay, uh, for the Asian region, the Asian currency unit. There's virtually no volatility in that, uh, that unit uh, across the region. Yen is a very good point. The, I've never seen the yen as stable as this. It's hardly moving. If you look into the Chinese economy and you look at the monetary operations of the People's Bank, it seems to me that what they're trying to engineer is a stable yuan against the dollar. So their interventions are all about keeping the yuan stable, even sacrificing economic growth to get there. And that's one of the reasons, I think, why you've got the picture or the profile of Chinese liquidity over the last 12 months or so. They haven't pushed lots of liquidity in. They've at times taken it out, at times they've put it back, other times they've taken it out. It's very, very managed. And at the moment, what you've got is a dip, uh, or you've had a dip 
over the last few months in Chinese liquidity. Now, as a corollary of that, or as a consequence of that, what's happening is the Chinese economy is rolling over. And we first saw that in the data around the first half of May of this year. There was a significant drop in some of the prints in terms of uh, reported data in China, a step down, which has continued, stabilizing a little bit in the last few days, but generally it's down. That's when the bond markets globally began to rally hard. It wasn't the Fed statement in the middle of June that did it. It was actually began earlier, about the time of this inflection in China. So the Chinese economy is operating in a different fashion. And I think that what, the, I mean, this is my read of it, I may be 100% wrong, but my read of it is China is emphasizing stability over growth. And this is a change in mindset. And what they've got to do is, in terms of the long term, is China has to financialize its economy okay, much more. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, I wrote a book about two years ago called Capital Wars, which goes into a lot of the detail about this and explains the whole liquidity phenomenon. Broadly speaking, what it said was that China is essentially an exporter or re-exporter of dollars. What it needs to become is an exporter of yuan, renminbi if you like, but yuan currency. How does it get there? It needs to do three things. Let's call it the three arrows of China's strategy. First thing it needs to do is to open up its capital markets to foreign capital and also to increase the facility of swap lines uh, for other central banks. Okay, It's been very successful in pulling in foreign bond money in the last 18 months and foreign stocks, despite the old wobble as we've seen in the last two or three days when they start to uh, act tough. But generally, capital has come in. Swap lines, I believe I'm correct in saying there are 32 swap lines between China, the PPOC, and other central regional central banks. So this is actually you know, a growing number. OMFIF, a consultancy, uh, said, I believe, about a month ago that on a survey of central banks, something like 20 or 25% of central banks said they were going to increase their holdings of uh, yuan in the next 12 months. So this thing is, is developing. Okay, Small start. But it's growing. Second thing they need to do is to develop a digital yuan, okay, to allow peer-to-peer -peer transfers across Asia. They're well advanced. I think whatever the figures are, 20 million people are actually already experimenting with a digital yuan. It's happening. Now, the key point here is not so much the yuan, digital yuan, it's the architecture that China is exporting. They are some years ahead, two, three years ahead of the US on this, um, but it's their architecture that is being sold. The Russians recently said they were going to introduce a digital currency, and it was going to be uh, essentially modeled on the Chinese system. So they're importing Chinese technology to do that. Others may do the same unless the US is, uh, you know, gets off the blocks quickly here. Third thing they need to do, which is maybe the most important of the three, is to develop a trade credit market in Yuan. Now, that's more important than it sounds. China is responsible for something like, what, 15, 20% of world trade, but the yuan is used in probably, barely probably 5% of those transactions. So what they need to do is to re-denominate their trade more in yuan. And if they do that, they can create a trade credit market, which will be intermediated by Chinese banks. Okay. Now, why is that significant? Because history tells you it's, it's key. 
Back in 1915, I believe, the Brits in the middle of World War I prevented UK banks lending any more money internationally, okay, because of the plight of, of keeping money at home in for the war effort. Most trade, even though the US was a big feature in trade, was denominated in sterling. Almost overnight, US banks were allowed to come in and create a trade credit market, and the dollar displaced sterling as the major reserve currency in a matter of months, certainly within two years. It was the dominant currency in the 1920s in foreign exchange reserves. It took a hit on the chin in the 30s, but it came back afterwards. But effectively, the trade credit market established the US dollar. And that's what the Chinese are looking at. China needs to export yuan, and then it gets a lot more muscle, and it can put you know, a lot more flesh on the bones of this BRI, Belt and Road Initiative. And that's what it's trying to do. Uh, more and more of its surplus will be invested in FDI in the Belt and Road, and less and less in US treasuries. Uh, so that sort of brings up a question for me as, I think I know the answer, but I'd rather have you tell me, what made or what caused China to pick a path of stability over growth? Is it a long range plan they have to get to, get to where you just said, or did they have some motivation or did it just kind of evolve by chance? I'm, I'm quite, I'm curious about that. Yeah, there's, a, there's an interesting quote that actually I, I, I make in, in the book Capital Wars, which basically quotes a major general from the PLA, who's often a spokesman for the, for the, Chinese, uh, for the Chinese authorities, which said, our goal is to displace the American dollar worldwide, but certainly in Asia. Okay. Now, if you're going to displace the dollar, you want other people to hold your currency. And so what you're going to do is emphasize stability, I think, over the potential for more volatility, which may come with growth. So I think it's all about financializing the Chinese economy. And they will sacrifice growth in the short term if it means a long term, more stable financial system and stable yuan. Michael, um, let's, let's move on to the repo market, because um, we've had two episodes, one back in September of, I guess, 19, God, it seems so long ago now, where the repo market was getting very squirrely, very quickly, and that, and that did lead to policy action by the Federal Reserve. Now we're seeing similar volatility in the reverse repo market. I think that it's important to distinguish between the two. And, and perhaps if you can explain why the, the volatility in the reverse repo market isn't the same kind of problem that we saw in the repo market, but in many ways to me, it smacks of a wider problem. This, 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 this tightening that we're seeing right now potentially could lead to to an entirely different set of problems. So perhaps you could just run people through what happened in 19 and the difference between that and what's happening right now. Okay. Well, first, let's let's be clear about what a, what a repo is. A repo is basically a, a collateralized loan. So in other words, the market will put together collateral. That collateral would be safe assets like uh, US Treasury bonds. And against that, they can take out a loan. And the Federal Reserve is one of the players in the repo market. And so the Federal Reserve will lend against safe assets. Okay. A reverse repo is the opposite. Okay. So it's essentially the Fed reversing that. And the Fed is effectively borrowing from the market, taking liquidity out and providing giving back collateral. Now, there are two things one's got to say about that particular operation uh, in the current context. Okay. 
maybe to reflect on why it's different from uh, 18 months or so ago. Now, if you look at what's happening right now, is that reverse repos, in other words, the Fed taking liquidity out of the market, have absolutely skyrocketed from zero to almost a trillion dollars. Okay, Now, it's come off a little bit in the last couple of weeks, but it's still very elevated. Now, many market commentators say, and it could be absolutely correct, fair judgment, that this is not an attempt by the Federal Reserve to taper or take liquidity away from the system. It is purely addressing uh, a disparity between repo rates, which were very low, and Fed funds, which are clearly fixed at a certain level. And that's that's uh, target Fed funds rate. So that may be, I'll, I'll come quietly, that may be the reason. But the fact is, whichever way it cuts, they are taking liquidity out of the system because they're, that's what they're doing. They're borrowing from the market and extracting liquidity from the money markets. Money market liquidity is definitively gone down. Now, some people will say, well, okay, but of course, on the other hand, they're giving collateral back. But the problem with collateral that comes from a reverse repo is you can't reuse it. Uh, it's limited. And so effectively, whichever way you square this, liquidity is coming down. Now, if you look at a measure of the effective Fed balance sheet, and what I mean by that is how much actually gets through into the money markets, it's flatlining. And that's what you would term in academic parlance, the reserve money. That's flatlining. And it's very clearly broken its uptrend. The overall balance sheet is still trending upwards, but the wedge is the reverse repo. So de facto, they are tapering. Now, is this intentional? Well, some people argue not. I think it probably is. And I think it's testing the water because effectively making a statement about ending QE is a binary decision. And they know from past experience that that binary decision was often not taken well, such as the taper tantrum by the markets. Let me ask you a question about the liquidity drawl aspect of what's going on with the reverse repos. And this may be splitting hairs, but you can tell me. Obviously, when and back in the old days, when the Fed did match sales, they were withdrawing liquidity. They'd come to you, and, and now they had that paper, and they had it for whatever the term was. But with with these reverse repos, if I'm a bank or a dealer, and I, I can put money on deposit at the Fed, or my collateral, and get five beeps instead of one, I'm just taking advantage of the situation. While they have that collateral overnight, they don't really have it. I chose to give it to them. And maybe that distinction is wrong to make, but to me, they, it's, they, don't, they don't seem even-handed. It's sort of like, you know, cross-border flows versus QE, you know what I mean? And so it seems to me that it's, it's less of an attempt on their part to actually withdraw liquidity than to try to fix the problem that was created with the, you know, paying money on overnight reserves. But yeah, I, yeah I, I, I agree. It, it may well be. If you come at things from an interest rate perspective, which the Federal Reserve often does, that I think is, a, is completely justifiable. And I think if they look at it through the lens of interest rates, that's what they're doing. But from a liquidity standpoint, uh, de facto, they're taking liquidity out of the markets. And what I would say is, where does that show itself? It shows itself in terms of term premium. Now, every time you look at uh, QE versus QT in the markets, when you get a QE episode of liquidity going in, term premium rise, okay? There's a clear history of this. And whenever you look at QT, liquidity coming out, term premium drop. 
And what you've seen over the last few weeks is a very clear crash of term premium. So it's completely consistent with the idea of taking money up. So I'd say I don't know, but you know, if it's yellow and quacks, it's a duck. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, so, so Michael, before before we wrap up, um, just perhaps let people know the the places that you are monitoring most closely for signs of stress, because because the beauty of these liquidity. Um, dynamics is that when you follow them, you do. If you know what you're looking for, you do tend to get a, an advance warning when there is stress in the system, because liquidity has become so important over these last couple of decades. So, which corners of those liquidity pools are you monitoring the most closely, and, and where, if anywhere, do you see any kind of yellow flags flying? The two most important central banks for that question are the Fed and the People's Bank of China. There's uh, a large army of analysts who Fed watch. There are very few people who look at the PBOC. Okay, uh, more people have got to start understanding what the PBOC is do- does because it's critical uh, to the Chinese economy. You know, I have to say, less so maybe for Chinese financial markets. It clearly has an effect, but it has its biggest impact on the Chinese economy and hence the world economy. And when you see the PBOC move it tends to have a big impact on commodity prices and ultimately world business confidence. So that's the role of that. Now, what is it that we're monitoring most right now? I would say we're looking at actually those actions of those two central banks, particularly looking closely at the Federal Reserve to see what it's doing and what its balance sheet, its effective balance sheet is doing you know, vis these reverse repos. As a market indicator, what do I look at most closely? I look at the slope of the yield curve because I think the yield curve is telling us a lot. And I don't think the yield curve lies, okay? It may be difficult to extract its message often, but I think the, the yield curve tends to tell the truth. Now, why does it tell the truth? Because basically what you've got driving the yield curve is ultimately term premium. And I don't accept the view that the yield curve is driven by rate expectations. I believe it's driven by what is actually happening in the markets with flows right now, and that's, about, that's all about looking at what the term premia, which are distorting supply and demand, uh, are already telling you. And why is that important? Because ultimately, this is the decision that big investors are taking about what they're going to do in terms of their holdings of safe assets versus risk assets. If they want more risk assets, they tend to sell treasuries and term premia go up and the yield curve steepens. If they want safe assets, they don't want risk, uh, they're basically going to treasuries, term premia crash, and the yield curve flattens. So I take the yield curve a lot, and I look particularly at things like the slope and also the convexity, and in actual fact, the relationship between, between the two. I mean, one of the things that you know I learned at Salomon Brothers was, you know, if you look at the pattern of the yield curve, it tells you an awful lot. I mean, Henry Kaufman was very much the doyen of this market. But if you look at things like, uh, if you have a very humped yield curve, flat humped yield curve, kind of what we're looking at more and more now, it's warning about a slowing economy. Okay? If you have a steep, uh, almost linear curve, that's telling you about an economic boom. Uh, we haven't got the latter, we've got more of the former, which is why I'm concerned about an economic slowdown. And I think that's probably occurring via uh, what the Chinese are doing. And it may be in terms of this currency policy. Fascinating. Um- Michael, look, it's been a really interesting hour. Before we go, just let people know where they can follow you. I, I, I follow you religiously on Twitter. The stuff you put out there is fantastic, but let people know where they can follow that, find out more about 
what you guys do and 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 your book because I think people should uh, read that too. Okay, uh, the book is called Capital Wars. It was published in 2020 by Palgrave Mellon. That's available via Amazon or sort of normal routes. The way to follow us is there's a Twitter cross-border cap, which is our, our hook. And in terms of the website, www.liquidity.com. And that, show, that shows how long we've been in the business because we got the liquidity. Uh, right. We got that domain very early on. Yes, exactly right. Exactly right. Listen, Michael, thank you so much again for spending the time with us. It's been, it's been so interesting. And uh, I look forward to seeing you when I can travel again a bit more freely. Great. Thanks, guys. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. Have a good day. See you. Bye. Bye. And then there were two. You know, it's so interesting, this stuff. It, it's, it's, kind of, it's kind of wonky for a lot of people, this liquidity stuff. But, um, but I find it very interesting simply because you, you, you can't argue that the, if you know where to look, the track record of this stuff tends to, if you know what you're looking for, give you clues as to where stress is happening in the system. And, you know, I, I just can't help but think, Bill, that the, 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 the more dependent the system becomes upon uh, outside influences to, to maintain stability, then the more important it is to understand where the stresses are occurring because the, the stresses that used to be able to be kind of shrugged off by the markets are, I suspect, going to have more of an effect, whether it's in the short term or the long term. We don't know until we understand what the stresses are. But, you know, markets used to be so much more robust and be able to shrug off, you know, brief instances of tightening liquidity or, or you know, shocks of varying kinds. But, but now everything feels so fragile that I think any chance you get to kind of have a sense of, of what might be happening in those dark corners is, is worth paying attention to. Uh, yeah, I, I think that, um, you know, liquidity is kind of an amorphous word yeah. and where people are intuitively understand more liquidity is good and less is bad. It's not nearly that black and white, but in any case, trying to actually define it is tricky. What I thought was particularly interesting is, and I see a lot of people have bastardized the word and they're not very intellectually honest about it, where he is precise and, and quite intellectually honest. And he made a few points I had never really considered before as, as, as how to think about this. And I, I think the most brilliant, I, I wish I had thought of myself, was the markets as a refinancing mechanism yeah. as opposed to a, a financing mechanism. To, I got to think about this some more, but that for me was a bit of an aha moment much in the same way that when Mike Green first started talking about passive, it explained to me what my eyes had been seeing, but I couldn't put my finger on and describe. I feel sort of that's why the markets sort of are the way they are, in addition to passive when we talk about equities. Yeah, yeah. But I, I've had this sense that the, the central banks have sort of taken over the markets in a way that they never did before. And I know they didn't intend to, but they have. And it's there's a sponsorship of equity markets by the central banks that has become an unwritten rule. And I think it all plays into this idea that, that these are financing, that they're refinancing markets. And, and that may be why Japan was Japan and why the U.S. wasn't for so long. And now maybe we're becoming more like them from that standpoint. Although I think we'll do a better job of creating inflation as we've already yeah. proven. Yeah. Um, so, and, you know, five out of six dollars is refinancing. I mean, there, there were some really important points that he made that, at least for me, that I want to want to think about. But uh, 
Um, I, that was the, the, the best discussion on liquidity that I've personally ever been involved in to try to tease out the components and why things matter and why they yeah. don't. And, and as a corollary, uh, his thesis about why China is doing what it's doing, regardless if you're rooting for them or against them, if that's their policy and that's why the yuan, the yuan's been, been different, these things all have big, bigger ramifications for us than I might have guessed. Yeah, huge. And, and that, you know, that refinancing thing is so important because we kind of know how dependent the equity market is upon being able to roll over, <laughs> all right, and, and refinance. A lot of these companies, uh, you know, the, the amount of zombie companies in the S&P 500 is, is frightening. These companies that cannot actually fund themselves through cash flows and they absolutely need to raise money. And it just speaks to this dependence that yeah. every single corner of the markets have on low rates. I mean, rates cannot go up because the, the, the wheels come off so fast. Because we're, we're, we're trapped. We're in a perpetual QE machine and they can try to dial it down. Last time they got very didn't get very far. They won't get very far this time if, in fact, they actually get to try. And, and uh, this has come up more and more in the last group of podcasts yeah. we've had, sort of the I'm quick to say the central banks are trapped and other people aren't quite so quick to say that, but it just seems so clear that they are. But there haven't been many consequences yet for that, other than no. people have gotten richer and the poor have gotten you know gutted because of the inflationary consequences. But Well, that, I, I think that's, that's precisely why this inflationary episode is so important, right? Because if, if it does stick... That will be that will be the thing that will force the Fed's hand because it, if people can't afford to put food on the table because prices are going up, wages aren't. It, you know that's when you get the kind of unrest that the Fed can't actually quell or, by it. Or will it? I mean, um, you know, as we discussed the other day, you know, with Greg Jensen, um, you know, the, the, there's a pretty high probability that the Fed's going to sit back and rationalize this for a while. They've laid the groundwork yep. for that. Yesterday in Powell's press conference, he talked about how the unemployment rate is not really as good as it looks. He happens to be right about that. But nevertheless, I read it more as a way to say, hey, you know, we mean it when we say we're not going to be proactive. But the thing that blew me in the way the most was when he defined transitory as not indefinitely. Yeah. And just because prices go up a whole bunch doesn't mean they're going to come back down, but that's still transitory. I know. I mean, I don't know if that's the reason why the metals popped uh, today being the day after the FOMC meeting or not, but gosh, I mean, they, they, I don't see how they can be more, any clearer in the fact that they're going to let inflation rage and people will get upset, but I don't know that the Fed will respond. I think they'll be more inclined to rationalize Maybe, maybe, but you, you know, look, that that clip that was doing the rounds on Twitter of Powell talking. I mean, he was he was sweating bullets trying to come up with something remotely sensible to say about that. And, and you know, all you have to do is post the chart of the CPI index, not the change year on year. Just put right. the CPI index. Right. That's the answer to it right. because inflation does go right. up year after year after year after year, which is what right. he said is right. the problem, right? It's and then if it goes on, if it only goes up a little after it went up a lot, by his definition, you don't right. have inflation. Right. I mean, it's know, just we go, it's, if we had prints of you know seven 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 or, or even seven five four three, that would mean no inflation, right. even though the prices probably just went up twenty five percent. That's just mind boggling. Well, anyway, mate, another fascinating conversation. Um, 
Our thanks to you out there for listening to us, as always, as we continue on this little long and winding road we've set out on. Um, if you're not following us on Twitter, please do so. You'll find me at TTMYGH. And I'm at Flatcap. Yes, he is. And we will see you next time for another edition of The Endgame. Thanks for listening. Nothing we discussed during the end game should be considered as investment advice. This conversation is for informational and hopefully entertainment purposes only. So while we hope you find it both informative and entertaining, please do your own research or speak to a financial advisor before putting a dime of your money into these crazy markets.